Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Kanas Albinas, Makalua, the main team, Mega Bears fan. With guest co-hosts, Tarak. Safe to go ahead? Let me check the levels. So it's okay. All right, then. Welcome to Polycast episode 338. Huh. I am Makalua, as usual. And with me, of course, Candace Albans. Technical difficulties notwithstanding, my computer is annoying. And me and team. I am also as usual, to the extent that that's usual. <laughs> Mega Bears fan. Don't be surprised if my dog joins us as a fifth co-host. And speaking of co-hosts, we also have with us Tirok. Great time to be joining you for the first time. Yeah, you get, to, you get to see all the technical difficulties backstage. Actually, it was not Skype's fault this time. It was Windows's fault, which I'm going to blame Steam for because it happens every time I use the in-home broadcasting on Steam. It's okay. Steam's not invasive software or problematic in any way whatsoever. It's fine. That's the only time I have trouble with it. Yeah, I'm just trying to rile things a little bit. Don't mind me. <laughs> First up today, we have an article on NintendoLife.com with a headline, Take-Two says Civilization VI sales significantly exceeded expectations and is excited to support Switch in future. So the game has been selling very well on Switch, and it's not very common that I hear a publisher say a game has significantly exceeded expectations. Usually I see the articles about some big AAA game coming out and it sold like 80 billion copies like more copies than there are people in the like world, and then they say it wasn't enough. <laughs> Bear in so mind, that's only a slight exaggeration. So yeah. this is a rare treat. This article was published back in February, and we missed it because there were other things going on in February, i.e. Gathering Storm. Yeah, which I think is still not available on... None of the expansions are available on the Switch yet, right? The DLCs are. The expansion packs are not. Well... Don't be surprised to see them soon. Uh, apparently. I'm not sure, but I think the DLCs were free on the Switch. That Somehow sounds I think the expansions right wouldn't be. I kind of doubt that they'll be free, but And again, I've said it many times in the past, I play Civ 6 on a Windows tablet, so having portable civilization is really cool. I don't need to get it on the Switch because I have it on the tablet unless my kid ever shows an interest in wanting to play Civ. She does like history, so that's a really strong possibility that I might be able to, you know, get her to do that at some point. So, yay! But on a portable platform, it's it's really cool to have that available. So if you've got a Switch and you like Civ, you know, by all means, go for it. I've played it. It's fun. Yeah, and the cool thing, of course, is that it's not like a super stripped-down version. It's not, you know, Civ Six Revolution. It's the full game. I think they only limit like the map size and the number of civs to like standard, you know, so you can play like the small and standard maps. You can't play like the huge or large maps, but you know, that's fine. I mean, I don't know that there's too many people that do that. I'm Especially pretty sure performance on machines pretty hard too. Yeah, it does. I'm pretty sure that Civ Revolution only had like six civs in it anyway. So right, but also time. in terms of mechanics it was you know relatively stripped down compared to what civ 4 was the pc game that was available at the same time yes so yeah compared to civ 4 civ rev was 
not fully featured. That was, of course, before the era where everybody considered mobile gaming to be the most important part of gaming. And the rest of us admit a collective sigh. Well, and also back before phones and and consoles were basically just PCs in a prefabricated box. Bad PCs in a prefabricated box at that point. Well, yeah, and to an extent they still are, but they're much more powerful than they used to be. It's only been one generation since then, which is kind of amazing. It is, yeah. Imagine what the next generation will bring. Probably 16 gigs of RAM while the rest of us have 32. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well. Although, to be fair, that's not the bottleneck in a game, unless you're really going under on RAM. Yeah, it's more often the CPU, or sometimes even the graphics card, depending on what game you're playing. I would say most games that are popular do be graphics card. Most of the games we play are CPU. Yeah, long live the PC Master Race, right? Oh, yeah. Amen. I don't like the term, but yeah. Well, that is an attempt at segueing us into the next topic, which is you. Which it is me, I believe. On the Civ Fanatic forum, a clue without posted an interesting topic on the lack of tension in Civ 6. And of the rest of you guys in this chat, how long have you been in the Civ franchise in general? Literally since about the beginning. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't play seriously until 4, but I played for very, uh, very many hours. But I actually started in Civ 2, so... I hopped okay. on at Civ 3, like, after it had both of its expansions, and then, yeah, did not get big into it until Civ 4. I hopped, yeah. I started on Civ 3 right, like, the month before Civ 4 came out, because I found it at a... Do they still call them pawn shops? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I found I was there with my grandpa, you know, being the typical 15-year-old who's not allowed to go into a pawn shop on his own. I saw this, and I thought, hey, look, it's 10 bucks. Grandpa, buy this for me, please. And he said, okay. And then... I played it and played it and played it and I never actually won a game because I didn't care about winning. It was just like, oh, my map is starting to get all this orange blotchiness all over it. I don't want that. I'm just going to start over because pollution <laughs> sucks. Yeah, I guess. Well, Alpha Centauri was my first intro to the Civ franchise back in, I think it was 2002 when I got that. And that was my favorite for a very long time. And even to this day, in many ways, it still is. That's why I use a quote from Alpha Centauri for my signature. But uh, other than that, I think Civ 4 was my favorite for a really long time in the series. There's so much good stuff in 4. So when you do look at the new things they've added with Civ 6, there's a lot of great stuff in the game. But I think there is, as a clue without posted, there is a difference in the feel of the game to something like going back to Civ 4, especially with the meaningfulness of your interactions with the AI characters. It feels like the diplomacy is very much lacking in that regard. Somebody posted, and I was looking for it earlier, I couldn't find who said it, but somebody posted that back in Civ 4, if the AI demanded tribute, you better pay attention. But nowadays, the AI demands tribute, and you can pretty much ignore them as much as you want. What do you guys think about that? I don't remember the last time I gave... An AI. I don't remember the last time I gave an AI tribute. Like even going back to Civ Five, I don't remember the last time I felt it necessary to do that. I, I was playing it... Duty the other day, and you really notice because they make a lot of gold return demands, and they're just. <laughs> if you did that in four, you are expecting ore. And at first, I was too because I forgot. But no, no, they never declared ore over that. I remember yeah. in Civ Five, you could have 
I saw this message once in all the years I played it, but it was like, would you please denounce this person? And if you didn't, they would denounce you instead. Oh, yeah, that's another aspect of diplomacy that doesn't seem to be around anymore. You can't ask other nations to do things regarding other nations. And one particular beef I have with this, and again, this goes all the way back to my Alpha Centauri days, but it would be great if you could ask another nation to make peace with somebody. That doesn't seem to be an option anymore. If somebody that you have good relations with attacks one of your city-states that you're suzerain of. You ought to be able to message them and say, hey, knock it off. But instead, you just get grievance points, and then what are you supposed to do with them? You could make an excuse to go to war, but what if you don't want to go to war with that nation? Then what do you do? You just ignore it? Yeah, you can't even bribe someone else to do it either, because it has to be a joint war. Yeah, so there is... I don't know. I, I think a clue without really kind of hit it. There is a lot of less tension in the game these days. And I mean, there can be some. There are certain instances where there can be moments of tension, especially in the early game. If you find out you're located next to somebody particularly aggressive and you're thinking, oh, crap, I need to adjust my plans and prepare to be rushed or something. The best tension in the game is always that's a really good place for a city I need to get there before someone else does. Oh, definitely, yeah. And then uh, Traveling Canuck made an interesting post later on about this issue. And he was talking, there's not very consistent tension, definitely. And he pointed out that it'd be interesting if, as you enter new eras in the game, experiencing different ideologies would actually change the way you relate to other nations more. Yes, you have a diplomacy penalty with some for having a different government in the late game, like a negative 40 hit you can get for having a different government in some cases. But before that point, there's not a whole lot of difference as you develop ideologies. But it would be really interesting if you had to commit to a certain type of ideology. Maybe your nation is really de devoted to the idea of monarchy, and another one is really devoted to the idea of democratically elected governments, and those build deeper divides as time goes on. I remember yeah. back in Civ Four, having a different religion could impose quite a bit of a penalty with your relationship with others. And having the same religion, you'd get a bonus. We care for our brothers and sisters of the faith, but nowadays don't really see much if they care at all, if you have a different religion, at least most of them, some of them might. Yeah, the fact that you can switch policies and governments pretty much at a whim means that you just don't get those entrenched, you know, ideological conflicts. Although you can't switch there and back uh, without eating anarchy, at least. So there's that. Well, there's the anarchy, but you know, like you can still do it pretty much at a whim because you, you can switch governments anytime you unlock a new civic. And unlocking a new civic is like, what, every, you know, five to ten turns, depending on your game speed. Anarchy is non-trivial, though. That's true. It, it isn't. But which I think it's is the, still it's the penalty to trying to do that. Yeah. Changing policy cards does not equate changing the government style. Yeah. And the yeah. policy cards would be a much less drastic change in general. Considering what they're trying to represent. Yeah, policy cards are basically the difference between Congress passing a bill or not, or a dictator changing his uh, prime minister, basically. Right. It would be, those are things that could conceivably happen fairly easily within a culture, whereas a change of government style would be probably revolutionary, or in, in some cases, civil war inducing, that kind of thing. Yeah. And we talked Since about external you know, diplomatic tension, but there's there's also, you know, I feel like Civ 6 in particular lacks a lot of internal tension. Like, there's not really very much, if any, push and pull on the player from within your civilization. 
like Civ Five at least had like the global happiness cap, and uh, which I don't I didn't like as a mechanic, but it was definitely like something internal that changed how you were gonna you know expand and play. But Civ Five also had things like the like each city demanding a resource for like the We Love the King Day, oh, yeah. and that's and that's just gone in Civ Six. So there's never anything that like a city or the citizens in your city like want or need other than you know, just the abstract element of giving them more amenities and housing. And like, as long as it's not negative, you're okay. But there's never anything where like a city is like, no, we need this thing. And if you don't give it to us, it's going to make us unhappy. There's loyalty. I, I think there's a lot of, uh, yeah, the, the, other than the loyalty mechanic, like it, it's all at a very abstract <laughs> level. And I kind of <laughs> wish that it, the game had more things like that, where your citizens were telling you that they want things and maybe different cities are actually giving you mutually exclusive things where you can please one part of your empire but not the other, and that would be something to manage, which would pull you in different directions. Right. I feel like we shouldn't just, like, hand wave the loyalty mechanic. That's very big. Well, yes, <laughs> it is, but it, it's if you're not conquering cities, if you're, if you're, you know, if you've got your tight, compact empire, you're just kind of turtling, there are pretty much no internal pressures on you at all. It's just because the game doesn't anything. use it. You could get loyalty from both spies and rock bands. Yeah, late late in the game. Yeah, but that would be interesting know. since you mentioned that if you could use spies on your own cities to affect the loyalty of your people, that'd be an interesting mechanic to explore. One other thing I was thinking while you were talking just now was back in the Alpha Centauri days, they there was the real risk of your economy collapsing as a random event. You could get an energy market crash, and then you could all of a sudden find yourself with pretty much no money and i remember back in civ 4 with the random events you would have you could have diseases and things pop up from unhealthy cities and stuff like that and you talk about internal conflict and pressure in your empires now that would be a very interesting addition to see something like that in six hopefully not just as a random thing that gets thrown on you but as you know something that's actually system driven where you know there's a affirmative action that the player does that you know possibly causes that stuff yeah, right for sure. ideally because right now i think the only way to lose all of your money is to build the big ben wonder if you have too much already that's been fixed <laughs> that was a pretty amusing bug though i wouldn't want to be the one to find that out by surprise though <laughs> well that was me <laughs> yeah one other thing in the thread on the forum Boris Goodenough posted an interesting thing, and that was an idea for tension, increasing instability, decreasing the linearness of the game. So uh, changing the way Dark Ages would actually affect things, because I don't know about anybody else, but I thought Dark Ages were rather underwhelming in this. Um, I only managed to get a Dark Age, I think, twice, and it was just it really, really kind of mess. It depends on your settings a lot. If you play on Deity and you crowd the map, a Dark Age can kill you. Like, literally kill you. You will get your capital flip along with your other cities. Oh, and yeah, like, crowded maps, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I know the... And uh, also, because of that, uh, the barbs aren't there. So you can't really farm era score in the opening era either. So it's actually pretty challenging to deal with it then. And if you are on a conquest path, again, a Dark Age really hurts because it's difficult to keep cities loyal if you're conquering them in a dark age so that really sets you back especially if you're trying to interrupt the victory condition although that's rarely an issue in civ 6 and to me that is the biggest source of tension civ 6 is missing if you get out of the early game you're probably going to win in most cases uh, unless you're really just not developing your empire at a decent clip 
even on Deity, I think the benchmark for AI wins is usually after 300 turns, which is crazy. And because of that, so much of the rest doesn't matter because even if you play it suboptimally and you do see significant costs or at least opportunity costs, it still doesn't affect the outcome per se. It just makes you win more slowly. And that's harder for people to notice or care about. And yeah. this comes comes back to something that a clue without said in the original post, which is that Civ Six lacks a central tension once you get past the medieval era. And that's something that I, I kind of feel has always been a problem with Civ, which is that the early game is always more interesting and engaging than the late game. Because yeah. once all the map is settled, the best tension in the game is I need to put a city here before someone else does. And once all the cities are in all the places and there's nowhere left to put cities, at least nowhere good, you know, you can still settle your your tundra ice ball cities and stuff like that. But, you know, that's not exciting or interesting. Once all the good spots on the map are taken, there's there's not that tension anymore. And that is the single biggest source of of tension and I would say engagement that the series as a whole has ever had. Yeah, I I think Um, the threat to be killed is more (laughs) more tense personally. Or well, the, the threat that somebody else is going level. to win, uh, either of those, either the threat of you losing outright or like you have you have to do something or that AI will win. Uh, I think that's the most tense, even more than city placement by a margin. On a higher difficulty, yeah, probably. But on a more broader sense for people who are playing across the entire spectrum of difficulty settings and map configurations and stuff like that, I'd say that the early city placement is... I mean, I could be wrong. This is just my perspective. But I, I would think that city placement is going to be the, the bigger thing because we're probably a minority of players who actually, you know, play the game competitively and, you know, actually get to victory screens or defeat screens. I'm betting that a large majority of the, you know, fan base probably plays the game to like the Renaissance and then a lot of people just get bored and start a new game. I'll tell you yeah, what, though, those players still get upset when they discussing- lose. There was a thread a few weeks ago that was discussing the fact that a very a small percentage of players have actually won the game so far. Does the new Hall of Fame that's in Civ Six show global stats for how many people have like won with a given leader and stuff like that, or is it just your stats? I do not know, but the I, way I they tell the way they tell is who has the achievement for winning a game on Settler. Mm, yeah, yeah. So the thread I was talking about was basically talking about Steam stats. You know, who won on on whatever difficulty or who won at all, basically. It's like forty one percent have won a game. on on settler or yeah less than half of the players who play the game have won a victory on the game's easiest difficulty setting they i'll tell you though people still get upset when they lose especially if they think it's unfair oh yeah yeah or like don't play to win they still don't like losing nobody likes losing to be fair i did lose my first game in civ 4 on settler so everybody's got to start somewhere yeah it can happen it was actually the space race it was kind of humiliating when i look back on it and you look at how many expansions, especially for Civ 4, 5, and 6, that have tried to, to fix the problem of late-game stagnation. I mean, you have, what, Beyond the Sword tried to do oh, it. Yeah. Bra- Brave New World, I think, is probably the most successful one at that with the addition of the, the archaeology and great works and, and the new culture victory and stuff like that. And then, you know, now we've got, uh, I think, both Rise and Fall and Gathering Storm could be considered to be attempts to do that for Civ 6. So They're not serious attempts, though. Well, but they are attempts. And, you know, like you said, the the loyalty thing is non-trivial. And that can be very punishing when you're going for those, you know, those late game domination That's all game, though. It's It's, not just a late game thing. It seems like Civ VI kind of took the design philosophy that diplomacy is less important than survival, which which seems to be why you can't influence Civs to do things. You can only react with them directly. 
But they don't do a good job of threatening your survival. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's because they're AIs. You, you mentioned loyalty and directness, and I think that's one other thing to touch on while we're on this topic, and that is that the loyalty mechanic is much more fine-tuned in 6 than it used to be in something like 4. Like, back in Civ 4, your cities would all automatically affect the territory boundaries that you had with another nation. So you would flip individual tiles over a period of time if your city was more loyal than one of your neighbors. And you could slowly eat away at their border along the entire line until eventually the city revolted and things like that would happen. Whereas in Civ 6, you really have to specifically target a city. Like, especially if you're Eleanor, you know, move great works into that city. Or if you're somebody else, move uh, the right governor there. Pick the right promotion path for Amani and move her next to a city that you want to try and flip. But it's a much more conscious and deliberate effort now. Whereas in the past, it was more fluid and dynamic and just kind of happened on its own. Very passive. I, I would very much espionage. Then it wasn't so passive. I would very much like to see some mechanics that allow you to take individual tiles from other players, either yeah. diplomatically or maybe military, like maybe you, you use a great general or something like that. You actually claim this is our tile now, and if you win the war, you can take tiles instead of having to take the cities. Yeah, that'd uh, be great. Like, I, I'd really like to see some mechanics like that, because there are times where it's just like, you know what, I just want that resource tile that's on our border. I don't need your city. I just want that one tile. And right now, the only way to do that is if you're one of those civs in Civ 6 that has a culture bomb, you know, feature. Yeah, like you're Aust- Australia. Poland, yeah, yeah or you're, you're Australia, you're Poland or someone like that, and you put that improvement or uh, district there, and oh, now I get that tile assuming that the other player doesn't have a district or wonder there. But I'd really like for stuff like that to be a a broader, more general mechanic where you can, you know, you can do a Louisiana purchase and be like, yeah, just give me a a bunch of tiles and, you know, stuff like that. Or, you know, you can conquer the tiles and not the cities. Yeah. Peace treaty stuff at the end of a war would be a lot more interesting if you could negotiate more than just whether to return or cede a specific city. There's a lot of potential there. Well, anyway, I don't know if we've beaten this topic to death yet or not, but... Sounds like it. Speaking of beating things to death, we will move on to aid requests where they, they, they work a little oddly. The gist of it is that the amount of money you are asked scales, and it scales poorly. And so the the opening post here is uh, mostly a rant about that, as you can have extreme differences in the amount of aid requ- uh, required to actually fulfill it. And I, I do think that's silly. It turned out that they were giving 200 to 300 gold per turn-ish. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, a lot of those things give you a diplomatic victory point, so it is a direct path to a victory. Yes, right? but scaling it is obnoxious. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. But I, I'm, what I'm saying is I can understand why the you know AIs would be giving all of their gold, especially if they have the, the flavor for wanting a diplomatic victory. Yeah, that's true. Or to, to block the victory. Yeah. It seems kind of random when the aid request actually triggers and not as often as you might expect it to, because I've seen catastrophic volcano eruption set cities on fire and then there's still no aid request and i'm scratching my head saying don't you need some help maybe the the victim i think has to propose it and i've had several disasters happen in games where i've had the option to to propose an aid request for myself but of course you can't compete in that which means you can't get the diplomatic victory for it so there's that that little bit of cost benefit where it's like yeah i could use the money i could use the help 
but I am literally handing a diplomatic victory point over to someone else. And it might just be that the AIs or players who are having these disasters happen just don't think that's worth the money that they would receive, especially yeah. early in the game where it's a smaller amount of money. Yeah. Earlier in the game, you need smaller amounts of money. Or rather, well, you true. don't need as much money in the early part of the game, usually. Depends on the disaster, too. Then again, we'll to yeah. That. Yeah, the disasters are also less severe early in the game, so you don't need the money to, you know, you don't That's necessarily need really the money true. to buy the builder. They're less well, severe, but they affect less things because less things are built. Right, yeah. I mean, if, if a flood wipes out all your farms along your capital, then yeah, that's a big deal. You're going to want to fix that ASAP early in the game. But if it's a flood that, you know, knocks out like one farm in one of your cities, like, eh, especially if you've already got a builder, you know, I usually am in the habit of just keeping one or two builders with one charge just hanging around in case that happens. Because the repair doesn't cost a charge. Well, I think it also depends on if the disaster is intense enough to just pillage the improvements or actually destroy them completely. Because then you have to rebuild them and that wastes a lot of charges. Right. And early yeah. in the game, from my experience anyway, it's almost always the pillage, which is easy to deal with. It's only later in the game, especially after global warming starts happening, that you get the ones that actually like destroy stuff. But these can easily influence 50% or more of your best tiles in the early game. Whereas in the late game... There's pretty much no disaster individually that can do that. You have so much territory in contrast, if you've been expanding anyway. Yeah, it just depends on where it hits. I think part of this issue is caused by the fact that it's 20 turns or 30 turns to give aid. And I think at one point during the development, that was only a five-turn window to give aid. Yeah, 20 turns is a long time. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it takes forever. It's like I by mean, the time the aid is finished, I've already gotten everything fixed even in five turns that could be enough time if you've got a decent economy and you can pop out a couple builders with gold you know that can be enough time to fix everything yeah, yeah. I, I think the the main problem with the with the world congress in general with this kind of thing is it's always the same long period between sessions and between actions whereas it should probably react more fluidly to what's actually happening in the world but that might be yeah. a different topic emergency there's a there's also the issue that if districts get pillaged i don't think you can spend gold to fix that right you you have to spend the production yeah that's that's a project type thing that it puts at the bottom and or even repairing and even repairing the buildings, I think you can't spend gold. You have to spend the production. So there's also the fact that, like, if districts are the things that are getting pillaged, like, the gold doesn't really help you there. And sometimes they get pillaged and it takes 30 turns to repair and you're like, what the heck is wrong? Oh, that with is this? annoying. That just yeah. is crazy. Yeah. I mean, best, best case scenario is you're, everyone's giving you gold and then you can spend the gold to buy the things that you would have been buying or would have been producing in the city while you're spending that 20, 30 turns repairing all of those districts and buildings. But you can't spend the gold directly on fixing the infrastructure unless it's improvements in all you need are builders. Here's an interesting question. When you get a district pillaged, does the repair cost scale like district cost scales? As in, if you build a district early and it costs not a lot, and then it gets pillaged late in the game does it cost as much as a late game new district to repair as it did or compared to as an early game district Oof. i've yeah, never explicitly know. tested it but there are times where i feel like repairing the district is more expensive than just building a new district i feel like that's true too but so i don't know or what maybe the actual building one is. earlier yeah i think if you're building one from scratch versus repairing at any one particular turn it's probably going to be more expensive to build it from so scratch so I definitely do feel like it is the case that the cost to repair scales 
with the cost of building a new district. So it might be a situation where you built a district early and it took you 10 turns and then it gets pillaged, you know, like 200 turns later. And now it costs 30 turns to repair. I suppose that's okay as long as you're, you're properly scaling your city's production, but well, not all cities scale up that way though. Yeah. Cause that's... you don't, you don't emphasize production to that extent in every city. And it also really changes, you know, the dynamic of harvesting and, and chopping. Because if you harvested and chopped to get that production because you don't have other sources of production, then you're going to be kind of up crap creek. I because, guess, uh, but you know, chopping you is still so much stronger. If you have the governor promotion that allows you to purchase districts, that ought to let you purchase repairs for districts, too. That would be... I would think so, but I, I've never explicitly tested that. It should he, do it. I don't know if it does, though. But yeah. it would make no sense if it didn't. Right. That would be... Yeah, so uh, if you have that governor, then you definitely probably should do that. And then those gifts of gold really will help. But you have to have that governor with that promotion, and then you've got to, you know, move her around. So. Yeah. And you're not going to have that promotion early in the game, because that is not a high-priority promotion. <laughs> no, it's not, because you just don't have the money early in the game to afford that, and the well, districts are cheap. So, well, And there are much better promotions to pursue as a priority early on. Yeah, and I have found that since Gathering Storm, I am using more of the governors early in the game other than just Magnus. So. Yeah, he got kind of nerfed a little bit anyway. Well, yeah. I wind up using Victor a lot just for loyalty stuff, because he can propagate loyalty in addition to dumping another governor into a target city. Yeah. So you, I, you resist loyalty pressure better that way. I've been getting a lot of use out of Reyna and the forestry management promotion early in the game. especially. Yeah, uh, again? I don't usually uh, take her until later. Plus two gold on every unimproved feature. Oh, yeah. Okay. So if you're in the middle of a bunch of forests or jungles... You still have to work them, right? Yeah, you still have to work them. So you have to have the population. Okay. But, like, that can be really good. You can get real rich off of that. And I especially like it. I've been playing games recently as the Maori, which get the... uh, Well, yeah. (laughs) Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. She's an obvious in that case. but, But even... Even without the Maori, like I've been using her with other sieves as well and, you know, have been finding that, yeah, I think I like her more than Magnus. I'd rather keep these junk forests around than chop them. She might re- mesh really well with Chichen Itza, too. Yes. You know, on a side note, back in Civ 4 when I was a much younger fella, I didn't know how to pronounce Chichen Itza. And the first time I saw it, I called it Chicken Itza. And my dad was like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, it's a chicken. And I don't know. Yeah, well, I've heard people do that. Uh, both unironically and ironically. So the modern pronunciation is chicken pizza. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. We we built lots of that back in our Civ Four days. We still build it now because it still exists. Not as often as we used to in the Civ Four, though. The one that Although I it wasn't trouble. a particularly great wonder in Civ Four. It was there. The one that I have trouble pronouncing what, now is courthouse the, uh, and everything. Something like that. Yeah. There are remember. a lot of hard to pronounce things in Civ Six compared to earlier games. Yeah, the yeah. one that you build on lakes, the Huey, Huey Tecatl, yeah, or whatever. That one is the one that gets me now all the time. I oh think the Hungarian Parliament is pretty interesting. I don't know. If yeah, it's hard. the Osh Oshgarzes or Oshgars. something. Like that. Yeah, yeah, that thing sounds like an Orcish name from Mordor or something. I first saw that and I'm like, what is this, Lord of the Rings? Is and, it? And now we've lost all of our. Central American and and <laughs> Central European listeners. I'm just going to point out that if you look at a map of Middle Earth, uh, Mordor sits basically where Hungary would sit if you were laid oh, over a map. Oh, it's, really? It does actually. It's kind of. Oh my! It, it, it's remember Tolkien was alive during the First World War and yeah, the, yeah. The, the Lord of the Rings era stuff. France is Gondor, and Germany, Austria, and Hungary are Mordor and everything 
west of, east of that. Yeah. So I wonder if yeah, the Lord of the Rings was definitely a reaction to World War One. So that uh, I had never noticed that before, but that makes a lot of sense. Well, partially. <laughs> Yeah, gotta remember if you go back and read some of the earlier writings about like the fall of Gondolin, you run into these things that are quite literally tanks, and Gondolin yeah. was three thousand, six thousand years before Gondor. So well, thing, magic. Yeah, it's just confusing. Anyway. So, Zenstrive, our Arabian king, has decided that he misses National Wonders, and he's upset that Civ VI doesn't have things like the East India Company, the National Epic, the Heroic Epic, the Ironworks, the blah 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 blah. Yeah, I was gonna say we sort of still have that in the fact that everybody has to individually build their own Manhattan Project and space Apollo program type of thing. That was always true. Those aren't National Wonders, though. Those are. Yeah, it's technically a project, but it was the level of effort put into it in real life was equivalent to a wonder. I think the Civ 6 equivalent of National Wonders is the government district. Mm, I don't know, maybe. though, because mm. the structure of the National Wonders was you build this many buildings in in so many cities, and then you get a special wonder that gives you a special bonus in one city based on the stuff. Yeah, and there's nothing like that in Civ 6. Yeah. Agreed. And somebody, but I'm saying, like, functionally, I, I feel like the, the government district is the, the closest thing we have in Civ Six so far, anyway, to a, a nas- national wonder. Somebody was mentioning in the thread that it, it's kind of interesting how, or not interesting, but it's easily taken over by the fact that every great person has their own unique effect, and all the governors have their own unique effects, and all of that stuff compensates for the lack of national wonders because the national wonders when you think about it are just various forms of bonuses that are added by the governors in that sense like pingala can just as easily be the national college or something like that i can see that yeah i mean the scaling is different and the mechanics are different because the the way the game works is a little different but the idea is the same the governor is there as a bonus to to increase the production of said value based on what is there and as a in broad stroke civ 5 had a design philosophy in general of trying to limit the number of cities that a civilization had and the national wonder system was part of that because every time you built a new city that pushed back your ability to build certain national wonders because you would have to build the, the buildings in those cities as prereqs and all that stuff whereas civ 6 is very much like nope build as many cities as you want so they don't have very many mechanics you know other than amenity to limit how many cities you can build and amenity is usually pretty easy to manage so loyalty would be the biggest one that stops you from building new cities and that's not very significant for that no i still think I the really like system the... was the most pressing when it came to city management because like more cities is still better but you actually had to think about the when and how I don't think any system implemented since then has put the same amount of thought pressure on expansion. Maintenance, you said? Yeah, Civ 4 maintenance. Well, Civ 3 corruption had its own issues, but nobody really knew how that worked until somebody, like, 
actually did mathematical calculations. I think it stayed like Civ 2, though, where no city would ever be a net negative. So you could just keep planning cities regardless. There well, was... Civ 4 had a pretty strong corruption system, and that was entirely the reason to build courthouses anyway, was to help reduce that. Well, that was maintenance rather so, than corruption. Civ, Civ 4 had maintenance, Civ 3 had corruption. And corruption was always influenced by the type of government you had. I would like to say, though, that the very first response on this forum by, uh, I think that's pronounced De Bravo, is that it's an odd omission because National Wonders seem like they would fit in very well with the adjacencies and unstacked city models for Civ 6. And I would agree with that to an extent. You know what? I think I made a boo-boo. I think, yeah. I, I, think I was supposed to introduce disasters and Mackie was supposed <laughs> to introduce National Wonders. Yeah, we Whoops. swapped them. Whoops, we swapped them. So, hey, we can always talk about disasters now. Hey, you get to edit in the live version. Nobody, I mean, in the post version, nobody will ever know. I will be impressed if he manages to edit in the live version. <laughs> yeah, that would be impressed, too. Ah. My personal philosophy is it's a lot more interesting to just leave the, the mistakes in there, but keep the flow going. So you can laugh along with everybody else. Well, back over on Zipfanatics, Socrates99 has been having a problem with, uh, they used to think disasters were mostly harmless and inc- inconsequential, but... But they had two separate games where their early game got completely wrecked. Uh, first, they were in an Incan game where they had disasters at four because they never tried that. And they spawned near three volcanoes and had so many eruptions they could never get their population over four and constantly had to rebuild their terrace farms. Well, when you spawn next to three volcanoes, it's probably a good idea to back off just a little bit. And you set the disasters to the, you know, please kill me setting. So You kind of had to expect at that time. Yeah. But but after that, they had dropped it back down to two and had no trouble for a few games. And they started on a large floodplain as Rome, playing on Deity. They ended up with only five cities. They've got legions to take care of that problem because they're pinned in by Russia and Mongolia. But they were on their way to do that, and a thousand-year flood hit, and Genghis hit them with surprise war. And between the flood damaging his units and Genghis' surprise war, it's like, oops, what army? It's like, well, yeah. yeah if, if they're timed just right sometimes, or if you have that situation where you've turned it up really high, and it it, it does seem like a pit. I, I've noticed this because I've because I've played the Maori in so many games, even in the multiplayer. But I see that the hurricane will spawn like in the same spot a lot and try to go to the same piece of coast a lot. So if you had it turned up to four, and then you would have somebody who's sitting on a coast constantly getting slammed by turn or, or cat five hurricanes. And then there's all the all the other things like the tornadoes rumbling through areas. And I mean, you have to expect it's going to wreck your game if you turn it up. But as you know, that second story there shows even when it's turned down at two, the normal level, it can still wreck you if you're not careful. I have you know, also kind seen of makes that. sense to have the disasters go to the same spot every time, because in real life, you know, certain places are more likely to get hurricanes every year and certain places are more likely to get tornadoes every year. I lived in Kansas for a number of years and I saw that happen. I think if if there actually is a mechanic for that, though, and there are places on the map that are more prone to those things, it'd be really nice if the game would like tell us that. Yeah, for sure. Because right now, hurricanes, like there's there's no excuse for, for their inclusion from a strategy game perspective. They are awful. They reduce the meaningful contribution of your choices rather than increase it in Civ 6 right now. I haven't actually seen what they'll do to the coastline, so I will withhold judgment on that. I've only seen it once because I play with Disasters on Zero, but if you tab down in that thread a little bit, you can see it. Because Victoria will give you concrete examples, and it's pretty rough. You lose a lot of stuff and pretty frequently, but if you get hit by that early in the game, it's a massive setback. Like There's nothing... There's there's very few choices you could make that would result in a comparable setback, even. 
Oh yeah, Phil. Phil even is in this thread giving an example of Galveston in real life. Galveston well, someone mentioned that. Yeah, but Galveston was exceptional. There's a reason we remember yeah. it. Like high category hurricanes hitting Florida is pretty devastating, but it's not. Most of them are not like Galveston, especially no. not life. Yeah, that was back when they had no idea that something was coming, and they basically had next to no warning except for a few people. So the city basically got flattened like a couple times within 10 years. Well, also, and it's ever, a city built on a sandbar. Yeah, a yeah. Sandbar. yeah I know. <laughs> and it's still there for some reason because people are crazy. Well, they have seawalls now, so that helps. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, it helps against most storms. Category fives. Also, there aren't that many category fives recorded since we started tracking. Um, yeah, on zip scale, it makes sense because you're advancing like five years per turn. But that's just unplayable because you don't build at that rate. Like, it, it doesn't take a hundred years to build a sea fort in real life. But in Civ, it does <laughs> in the early game. I think this current statistic is there have been three hur- uh, hurricane category five landfalls in the U.S. since 1900. And that was Labor Day in 35, Camille in 69, and I think I thought, it was, I thought I, Andrew got upgraded to a category. Yeah. Five. It's, I'm thinking Andrew as well. That was in like the 90s, right? 91. Yeah. yeah. It hit Miami. And I think they just recently announced that the one that hit Florida last year at the very end was going to be upgraded to a five. So they're pretty rare. Yeah. But when you have it turned up past a certain level, it's like it will only spawn fours and fives. Yeah. And it's going to spawn them frequently on that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, you don't even know where they're going to happen in the game, which is ridiculous because you know where the floods are going to happen, like from global warming. Yeah, the you floods and the volcanoes me. are the the better disaster mechanics because you can see them on the map. Like you, you can't tell me that there's it's a reasonable mix to have those be known in advance, but not hurricanes. Yeah, which I is, ha- when we played, like, word of mouth player. might give you were hurricanes, but there's no way people in like 4,000 BC or 2,000 BC are going to be like, oh, you know what? In 4,000 years, there, there's going to be pollution and the, the sea levels are going to rise. And, no. <laughs> Yeah, when we play multiplayer, if I if I am the Maori and I can see where that's spawning, I try to mark the spawn point so you know they're going to come from there and things like that. But I, it's just, yeah. I, how did people? I mean, it's neat that we see it on the map, but then I sometimes sit there and think about the reality of that. Is people in this era without technology to see this coming wouldn't know this was coming unless a boat's right by it. But yet you see on the map that in the fog of war, the, the little swirly cloud thing that's map size and it's like how do they know that's there nobody can see it well they're civilian ships i guess yeah i mean these things take years to hit apparently because of how the turns scale so yeah just (laughs) just think of it as being oh well there was a particularly bad season that happened in this time period yeah that's how i've always thought of it there was a, a you know 10 or 50 year period where the hurricanes were much more frequent and you know it's all abstracted like that like there's been studies uh, of paleotempestology that have showed that hurricanes in the gulf of mexico are cyclical in that there were probably a few thousand years where there were very few if any major storms in the gulf of mexico and yeah now they're fairly common so it's hard to you've say you've got the You've got the cycles of, you know, ocean temperatures heating and cooling slightly. And then you've got things like the uh, El Nino cycle that, you know, causes more, fewer storms, uh, you know, over periods of what El Nino, I think, is like 11 years or something like that. Uh, it's uh, average 11 years, I think. Yeah. So you, you have those cycles in real life. So that's always how I've, you know, imagined it. So a hurricane hitting in, in Civ is like, oh, that was a really bad El Nino, you know, that 11 years. And then we discover things like the Pacific Decadal Current that nobody really knows exactly what it does. And 
all the other decadal things that happened that people haven't even been able to monitor yet because they take so long to happen. It's complicated to the point where modeling it in a game like this is kind of interesting, but we try not to think about it too much. I mean, it, it doesn't bother well, it's, me it's anymore. It's your agency in a strategy game. I, I do not like when they introduce mechanics that are quote-unquote historical that reduce the strategy consideration in the game. I, that, to me, that is a strict degradation, even if things happened historically. Like, there's so much that Civ chooses not to model historically because it would be BS game mechanics or not fun to interact with. So why throw in random noise if you can't play around it? Yeah, and some I of the agree. stuff you cannot play around. Some of the stuff you can, and it's not nearly as bad when you can. Right, like the uh, floodplains and good. volcanoes. Yeah, um, like, those are reasonable trade-offs. Uh, floodplains in particular. Volcanoes, just stay away from them, I guess. But Well, you get the soil fertility from those as well. Yeah, uh, but, yeah but I, I agree. You don't want to be anywhere near that, though. And, that's <laughs> and I guess why you can put part of your city near it. I, I agree with you, and that's why I, you know, I, I think before the expansion came out, I said that I was hoping that it turns out to be similar to the City Skylines Natural Disasters expansion, where a large focus of that expansion was on uh, putting in infrastructure to, A, detect when these disasters are going to happen early and then be putting in like shelters and stuff like that so that you can evacuate your population in order to minimize the loss of life. You're still going to lose a lot of infrastructure, but the, the whole expansion was designed around detection, prevention and mitigation. It wasn't just, oh, here's a random disaster that wipes out, you know, half your city and kills half your population. There was nothing you could do about it which has you know, been the way that disasters worked in you know, games like SimCity and stuff like that before. It was like, no, it's, it's all about you making sure that you can minimize the randomness of, of these events you know, through good play and planning. And that's one of the things that Civ Six lacks with things like the hurricanes. You know, again, the hurricanes probably are the worst because you also have like, the droughts and the blizzards, which are you know, kind of in the intermediate area where, yeah, you settled in a desert, or you settled on tundra, so there's going to be droughts and sandstorms and blizzards uh, hurt too, though. Especially because like sometimes yeah. you're forced there, and that's bad land in the first place, and now you're double penalized. Right, and same thing with the sandstorms in the desert. But those are, I feel, are there's a scale where the floodplains and the volcanoes, I think, are the best implemented of the disasters in in Gathering Storm, and then the blizzards and the uh, sandstorms are like in the intermediate, like straddling the line, and then the hurricanes are like, yeah, this is kind of ridiculous, guys. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, but when you're going to put in something like this, it's hard to put in a thing that says you have experienced a period of storms on this particular tile or group of tiles and not say it's a hurricane because a hurricane is easy for people to grasp. Well, true. But what, I, what I'm getting at is that there could have been more emphasis on giving the player infrastructure and things that allow you to mitigate the the damage before it happens but so you nobody has yet invented a way to mitigate the damage of a storm surge well no not all of it but i mean they're actually building design is significant when it comes to hurricane though because it's not just storm surge wind is a big deal too so having your structures designed well and having early warning systems both drastically reduce the damage you take it doesn't eliminate it but having your structures at least capable of surviving the high winds makes a big difference because if they're not right on the coast they might actually survive. Well, and there could have been early game things like levees and stuff like that that are precursor to the flood walls that would mitigate some of the damage because there's a hurricane is also going to have the winds, but it's also going to have flood damage as well. So there could have been something like that that you could put on your coastal cities to reduce the damage, you know, definitely not bring it to zero because, again, you know, even now we still can't stop a hurricane from, you know, devastating a city. 
But there could have been more things like that that you could do as a preventative measure or things like putting in shelters that, you know, guarantee that you don't lose population. Like Civ 5 and 4 had like the fallout shelters in the bunkers, which protected your population from nuclear attacks and I think also air bombing runs. So there could have been stuff like that where you can protect your cities a little bit more so it's not as much of a roll of a dice can reduce the randomness of the dot of the dice at the very least. And I, I feel like Civ 6 didn't do enough of that, if that makes sense. It does to me. But then yep. I agreed on it already. And if you haven't played that City Skylines Natural Disasters, you know, I think that's a really good case study of how to do that sort of thing well. Like that game still has the disasters are still completely random, which is one of my frustrations. I, I wish that game had, you know, weather and, and geologic models that could tell you whether or not you're on an earthquake fault. You know, so you know that an earthquake is going to happen. You just don't know when, you know, so I wish that had more of those sorts of things. But I, I think it's still a better implementation of this sort of idea than what Civ 6 did, because the whole focus of the expansion was on detection, mitigation and prevention. But if, if you are one of the people who hates disasters and you think they have no place in, in games at all, I do recommend checking out City Skylines Natural Disasters expansion, because I think that is one of the best implementations of this sort of idea that I've ever seen in a game anyway. Uh, there's also games like Banished is also good because that game is also a city builder game that has seasonal cycles. And every winter there's, you know, storms and blizzards and freezes and stuff like that. And the whole game is about stockpiling resources and making, you know, clothes and fire logs and, and stuff like trying that. Trying to prevent so, your population from having a whole bunch of incest families because you don't have enough to anyway. <laughs> well, yeah, that, that too. But the whole game... You know, ban- the whole game of Banished is about preparing for the winter and so that yeah. you, your whole population doesn't die when a blizzard comes. Yeah. So that's also a good example of, you know, weather and, and disasters being well implemented in a game because the entire game is about preventing and mitigating the damage that they deal. Recorded for episode 337. Okay, so start biases. Somebody went into, oh, this person is Iam Max Hail Me. I am Max Hail Me. Okay, so somebody wants to be hailed. Somebody went into the expansion to underscore civilizations underscore major dot XML file in the DLC expansion to data file for civilization six and pulled out the start biases for the gathering storm civilizations. Lower numbers in this case equal higher bias. So Hungary gets geothermal fissure 5 and river 3. Canada gets tundra and tundra hills 1, snow 1, 5 and 5 for snow hills. Inca gets desert mountain, grass mountain, plains mountain, tundra mountain, and snow mountain at 33355 respectively. Mali gets desert and desert hills, which were two but are now one since the patch. And they also get adjacency, they also get uh, all the mineable resources at five. Phoenicia gets two for coast. England gets coal and iron, both at five. Sweden, Maori, and Ottoman have no bias. I do want to say that I think I've read somewhere else that the Maori ocean start is actually on the map scripts and not like actually a civilization ability so if you play on a custom or modded map that did not have that script in it the maori will just start in a random location yeah but i don't know if that's i haven't tested that explicitly myself so i don't know if that's correct it should be noted that the the existing start bias for england still is the same so because it was not overwritten england still has a three for 
terrain coast. So coastal terrain, it still has a three. Really? Only a three? Only a three. And from rise and fall, Korea... Let's see, what does Korea get? Nothing. Okay. Nothing. uh, It looks like Nubia is set to two for terrain and terrain hills, which has changed in Gathering Storm. So now we know why Mali couldn't get desert starts. Oh, they nerfed it too hard. They didn't... They They had to do two instead of one. Whoops. I mean, even Canada got one for the sun, for the tundra. I mean, I don't know why you would ever want to be in the tundra. <laughs> you would need, like, some major juice bonuses to make that an actually desirable starting property. Could be used to, like, offset what it would otherwise be an amazing sieve, but that's not usually how it's done. They're just going for the flavor. Well, I found that you can be real successful with Canada by just settling all of the non-tundras places first and then just backfilling it all later, and then you just have a bunch of extra cities. Well, true. That would be what you would do with basically any sieve that starts there right but in the case of canada (laughs) they're not terrible cities like they're actually usable cities they grow to a decent size and since they patched the game in the last patch to give canada plus one production on i think all mines in on tundra and snow so they can actually be pretty productive as well but the food still stuffers yeah you're not gonna get as much food but the fact that you can build farms means that you're still gonna be able to get you know some city growth as long as you've got a couple food resources you're not gonna you be capped at work three those, po- though, usually yeah you're not gonna get capped at like three population like you would with a lot of other sieves call in today in north america the number is 301-637-7659 that's 301-637-POLY. In Europe, 44-121-288-7659. That's 44-121-288-POLY. The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about. For more information on Polycast, our sibling shows are about Polycast in general, log on to the series' official website at thepolycast.net. Actually, SimCity had negative interest, too, at one point. It was in 2000, for sure. You could jigger it to get negative interest. That was good times. Now we need to find a way to do that in Civ 6. Oh, no. Just get negative maintenance on units and just keep building more units, which gives you more money because they they pay money. Yeah, we spent a lot of time this uh, episode talking about not Civ. That's That's okay. We talked about it in context to Civ, though, so... Yes. It's always important to have a point of comparison when, you know criticizing something. Although I do regret not making fun of that one thread that was about Imperator Rome and how it does how it compares to Civ because Imperator Rome is a disaster on all levels. Yeah. Yeah, so I've heard. I had that game on my wish list and then I saw that it was messy and I was like, I think I'll pass. Well, it was so bad that uh, that it was universally hated by even the people who usually fanboy White Knight, the people on the forum. And then the leader of the studio comes out and says, well, it's the best 1.0 release we've ever had. I don't know why people are complaining. I'm like, we are a colossal oh of glaring ignorance. Shut up before you make yourself look even stupider. White knights are okay as long as they're on a chessboard. White knights are also uh, fine as long as they're in the White Palace. Ugh, I don't know about that, but sure. I prefer the buzz size, personally. Those are warming. Well, okay then. So... Appreciate the opportunity to be a part of this. This is Tirok joining for the first time, and in the cast we have had Canis, of course, and 
hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. You gotta, you gotta stop and pause for the second for the witty comment. You did, but you didn't say anything. Well, I, was, I know, I was, that's what I tried to do. I was trying to open my mouth. I'm a little bit slow sometimes. My witty comment <laughs> is witty comment. <laughs> Very good. Oh, let's see. Who else was in this thing? The me and team was another one. Bringing to you the best of disasters. And Mackie. Uh, did the best disasters increase the fertility on my coffee plantations? Mm. Ah. We always need more it. coffee, don't we? Mm-hmm. And Jason. Mega bear no, it, it gave all the fertility to my chocolate and ice cream plantations. Ooh, Ooh. There you go. Acceptable trade-off. Good enough. Was that I will ooh? be happy to sell my chocolate and ice cream to you. Was that an ooh or a moo? Yes. Uh, I <laughs> I wish City Skylines would make it so that all the cars wouldn't all try to lane switch at the same spot, three lanes oh, across, yeah. I... <laughs> so that you don't block the entire highway with one car trying to go from lane four to lane one. Yeah, that's the the biggest disaster in in City Skylines. Uh, but hey, it's it's still better. It's still better than Sim City 2013. What? What's what? What? Because well, Sim City yeah. died. There is no Sim City 13. Yeah, the last Sim City game was uh, Sim, Sim City, City 4. 4. <laughs> Everything after that is a bastardization. Yeah, you, you definitely need some of those traffic management mods for City What, Skyline. nobody looks fondly on SimCity societies? I Sim never City's, played it, actually. It's not never a SimCity game. It's a, it's a game <laughs> like SimCity that is actually less about city management and more about balancing your budget while making things bigger. Because you don't actually zone stuff, if I remember correctly. You just put down buildings. Yeah, and you didn't actually have to balance your budget at all. It was stupidly easy. You got money for putting down buildings. <laughs> Wait oh. a minute. That's the reverse. You're supposed hmm. to cost money. Hold up. Is this like the negative maintenance uh, bug in U4? Because that was good times. It was a joke, is what it was. Look at how long the Elder Scrolls has been using, you know, steel swords and shields. So those fantasy worlds, they, they never have advanced technologically. At the well, you know, time. I heard an interesting argument about that once, and somebody said that the reason they didn't advance with technology is because magic made it that they didn't need to. Yeah. You know, and somebody once said that uh, any any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That was Arthur so if you have, Clark, so. so if you have the yeah. magic, you don't need the sufficiently advanced technologies. I don't know, because like there's still stuff the magic can't do in the game, and their magic research isn't progressing that well either. <laughs> yeah. Well, part of the reason for that is whenever something magically advanced shows up, the Sijics come and steal it. So <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help. Well, that that does give you incentive to use something other than magic, then though. Also, there's a lot of various levels of chaos going on, but that is beside the point. We need to start talking about <laughs> natural national. No, Elder Scrolls is ahistorical. <laughs> no, you didn't turn into an Elder Scrolls podcast. <laughs> A historical. We can do that another time. <laughs> Thank you.
Record date, May 18th, 2019. Civilization 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Sound Clips, copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright The Polycast at thepolycast.net.